This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Jennifer Farmer is a strategic communications professional. She's a lecturer and also author of the award-winning book, First and Only. I wrote the book because uh, as a Black woman who was in a leadership position, I consumed a ton of business books that were supposed to help me be better at my job. She says many of those books didn't prepare her for what she would face in the workplace. For instance, uh, many Black women experience tone policing. We experience questions about our hair. Uh, Many of us are afraid to be labeled an angry Black woman. So how do you handle all that? And how do you prepare yourself to do what's right for you? Coming up in this episode of Colors. There is a very important Supreme Court case in progress. Forcing us to acknowledge, and hopefully the Supreme Court will agree, that racism and discrimination really prevents students from having equal access to educational opportunities. Niyati Shah, she's Director of Litigation at Asian Americans Advancing Justice. The case is called Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus Presidents and Fellows of Harvard. It's one of two cases coming before the Supreme Court to a eliminate race as an admissions factor. Shaw and her group argue that shouldn't happen. When you have holistic race-conscious admissions, then you can um, address some of these barriers that can prevent many Black and Brown and AI students even that are qualified but um, have to overcome systemic barriers that perhaps other students um, don't. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. My name is Gretchen Soren. I'm African-American, and I live in Springfield Center, New York. My name is Adam Carter. I am white, and I am from uh, South St. Paul, Minnesota. My name is Jesslyn. I am a multiracial woman raised primarily by white people. I live in Oakland, California. And I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. As I mentioned, Niyati Shaw is Director of Litigation with Asian Americans Advancing Justice. And they're working on a case with a number of different organizations. And this case is designed to push back against an effort to dismantle race-conscious admissions policy. This case that they're working on is in the Supreme Court now. And, Nayati, we're going to go over to you to have you explain to us what this case is all about and who you're working with. So you're very correct that we're working probably... um, with a very large civil rights coalition. But um, on this issue, as you've seen, um, you know, uh, voices from all segments of our society, from churches, the military, to corporations and scholars, 
um, and social scientists and academics all have um, spoken out really about the value of diversity and uh, the value of diversity in particularly in the education context and how valuable that really is. Um, and, you know, this case kind of is, is forcing us to acknowledge and hopefully we, the Supreme Court will agree that racism and discrimination really prevents students from having equal access to educational opportunities. Um, and that would give them a competitive edge, not just in the job, but even getting into some of these schools um, when you have very selective admissions processes. And so when you have holistic race conscious admissions, then you can um, address some of these barriers that can prevent many black and brown and API students even that are qualified, but um, have to overcome systemic barriers that perhaps other students um, don't. What is the case? Uh, tell us what this case is that triggered this whole thing. So, so this case was um, brought by an organization called uh, Students for Fair um, Students for Fair Admissions, and um, I want to say that it's the architect behind this organization is Ed Bloom, who is also behind um, many efforts to dismantle. Uh, racial equity in this country, including uh, Shelby the Holder, um, uh, I'm sorry, Hold, uh, Shelby County versus Holder, boy. Um, and, and, you know, there are two cases, in fact, one that he brought against Harvard University's admissions policy, saying that race-conscious admissions um, uh, are, are discriminatory. Um, and one against UNC. And this isn't the first time that he's attacked race-conscious policies. He was also the architect behind the two Fisher cases. And it's, you know, over the last 40 years, the Supreme Court has um, consistently affirmed that a flexible, holistic uh, admissions process that has race is one factor that isn't used as a quota, that is not used in a um, robotic way, it's entirely permissible. Um, and despite just having lost in Fisher just in 2016, short time ago, um, you know, he brought Harvard, uh, a case against Harvard or his organization did, and uh, they uh, brought another one against UNC. So that's what this case is about. They're challenging whether colleges and universities can consider uh, race um, in their admissions process. And why is this important to your organization? Yeah, so, you know, we want to, of course, stand in solidarity with our black and brown brothers and sisters, but it is, it is beneficial to everybody. Right. When you have diversity in education in your classroom settings, um, that benefits all of us. And um, that is something that we should all stand up for. That is what you've probably seen in the myriad of um, voices who are speaking up um, in favor of race conscious admissions. Right. So it is it is true that we stand up and stand together against discrimination. Um, and we know, as I explained, that SSFA and its architect, Ed Bloom, are 
really trying to divide our communities. And we certainly don't want to let them use the Asian American community as a wedge against other communities of color. And we know that the Asian American community that we represent overwhelmingly supports race conscious admissions. Um, and, and so for all those reasons, but to, you know, to stand in solidarity, to support diversity in education, which is a benefit to everybody, is a just and worthy cause to get behind. All right. So you and your company and I think 50 some other companies filed an amicus brief uh, in support of this this activity on the 1st of August. And it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm interested in knowing what um, what's taken place since then. Right. So uh, I, I just want to clarify one point uh, so that there are a bunch of corporations that you, uh, as you said, that you, you know, got a release about that filed a brief talking about how uh, diversity in education setting is beneficial. Um, my organization, um, we, um, you know, represent some of the students in Plus who testified in the Harvard uh trial. Um, so we, we submitted a brief on their behalf, um, as well as a brief on behalf of our affiliation, the Asian American uh, Advancing Justice Affiliation, which is made up of uh, five independent organizations representing the Asian American community across the nation. Um, and we also submitted a brief along with many um, supporting organizations to uh, show how the Asian American community benefits and supports race conscious admissions policies. So, so just so you know that that was what happened on August 1st. Um, and there were many, many briefs that were filed um, from many, many segments of the, uh, of our society, as I mentioned earlier. Okay. So uh, what, excuse me for interrupting, but what's happened since you filed your brief, it's the 10th of August. So what's happened to your situation since you filed? So, so we are now focusing our attentions on oral arguments in which the Supreme Court will hear uh, the sides present a case on this. And we look forward to uh, seeing what the decision is going to be, whether 40 years of precedent will be upheld um, by the Supreme Court. Okay. Give us a sense of some of these affirmative action programs that uh, have been so important for uh, people of color and women. Um, that we um, need to pay closer attention to, especially considering the actions that you have laid out that are uh, in play to, to try to dismantle them? Right. So, you know, look, there are, we know there are persistent racial inequalities in the pre-K to, uh, you know, 12th grade educational systems. And many students of color, including Black students in particular, confront barriers to educational opportunities, you know, whether they're guidance counselors, um, whether that be access to test prep um, barriers and, you know, what resources their schools are having it is all perhaps dependent on their zip code, right? And, and to say that acknowledging these systemic barriers, including which are often faced by Latino and uh, underserved Asian American um, populations is really important. And um, to have a neutral system of admissions or so-called neutral is not neutral because we know, for example, how would that work, right? Would, would a student be able to tell their whole story and show their 
um, leadership skills, their work ethic um, in an accurate way when, you know, we're, without accounting for the barriers that we've just discussed, right? And, and how would a race neutral system really work? Would um, somebody kind of be able to talk about their leadership experience um, volunteering at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but perhaps not talk about the, their work with the African Methodist Episcopal Church or the Korean Presbyterian Church because that has race connotations attached to it, right? Could universities consider extracurricular activities of a uh, student in the future business leaders of America because that seems race neutral, but not junior membership in the National Society of Black Engineers, right? Like how would how would the system work? And you know, why are we trying to dismantle something that allows all students to be able to present themselves fully um, and their yeah. experiences? And so that's really a little bit of what's at stake here is like. What does a quote unquote race neutral admissions process really look like? And is that really fair? And does it really give a fair shot to everybody? Yeah, I, I appreciate what what you're doing and the work that you're doing, because the answer to your question is, why would why would there be an initiative aimed at dismantling something like that? And the answer is clear. And you know the answer to it. I know it, too. People just don't like to say it. Um, often, but it's just racism. Simply put, it's discrimination. It's simply put, in some cases, it's hate. So I think what you're doing is is great, your organization. Um, so what kind of response have you gotten from the people that you're working on behalf of? Great. So I think it's overwhelmingly positive. We know um, from talking to our communities that there is about, you know, a significant majority of the Asian American community that we represent and work on behalf who support race conscious admissions um, and programs that allow, um, you know, people of color, uh, women to have access to equal opportunity, right? Um, and this is just, you know, this is in, 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 line with what most Americans feel like the Asian American community is not an outlier in this. And, um, you know, that is really important to know that even a majority of white Americans, according to a Gallup poll, support race conscious admissions. Um, more, a higher percentage of Asian Americans support it as well. But we know that having diversity and the, the benefits that flow from a diverse uh, education setting really resonate and is supported um, by the community at large. And you can see that in, in, in the plethora of uh, amicus briefs, um, which are, you know, friend of the court briefs that were filed in support of race-conscious admissions. So for those who are not familiar with a friend of a court brief, explain what that is. Yes. Yeah, so uh, an amicus curiae brief, which is um a fancy Latin way of saying friend of the court brief really um, is filed by people who will be impacted um, by an outcome of a case that they're not a party to. So the parties in this case, right, are Harvard and SSFA in the uh, first case, and the other one is UNC and SSFA, right? These parties are saying that, you know, SSFA is saying that Harvard or UNC's admissions policies have harmed the students that its organization. Um, purportedly represent, right? Um, and 
And, but the outcome of this case, however, is not limited to just those students or just that university, um, whether it's Harvard or SSFA, there is going to be widespread impact that we've kind of talked about. Um, and, and what uh, a world without race conscious policies may look like, it's a bit of an unknown, but that's where we stand, right? That's what it's at stake. And so, so many of these segments of the community, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> um, whether it's the Asian American community, the Black community um, or the Latino community is definitely spoken of. But we have other segments of society like business leaders, military leaders who have spoken up, um, academics who talk about how having a diversity of opinions and a diverse setting that is represented by racial diversity is so beneficial and how many benefits flow from that diversity. What can be done to make or entice more people uh, to get involved in this effort? Because I see it impacting more than just the people who would be harmed um, by turning away from this practice. Um, you know, instead of just people of color and instead of just women who might lose out on this, I, I think the entire society would lose out. They would lose out um, on the skills. They would lose out on the energy. They would lose out on the ingenuity that these folks who were being frozen out could bring to our society in a number of different disciplines. So what what are you doing to generate, aside from doing interviews in places like this, um, what are you doing to, I guess, generate some energy in the global, uh, or at least the, the U.S. community to support um, the work you're doing? Well, I mean, I think we continue to work to uh, reduce barriers to opportunities in the education context or in voting or in the innovation system um, to show the benefits of diversity, to show the benefits of inclusivity. Um, and you know, we know that we live in a very global society. And, and I, think, I think that society, our American society is aware of that, right? Which is why there's overwhelming support um, for race conscious policies across all communities. Uh, including the white community, because we know and they know that diversity, inclusivity is beneficial to everybody. Um, and, and having a diversity of opinions, a diversity of uh, socioeconomics, of race um, are all important and they're not interchangeable. And so I think as we continue to fight to reduce barriers and people um, have the opportunity to act you know, have occasion to uh, access opportunities that were not available to them before, including access to say the ballot box because there was language access protections, for example, um, or, you know, aren't separated from their families in the immigration context and get to benefit from these lack of barriers and see the benefits that flow when we reduce barriers. I think there's gonna just be increased support for these policies. One of the things that I've always thought was interesting about your organization is that on your website you have um, a tab that says "Get Involved." One of the one of the landing pages underneath that tab is one that says "Share Your Story." The overwhelming majority of Asian Americans are immigrants or the children of immigrants. It says, 
And the Asian American and Pacific Islander population includes the highest proportion of immigrants of other racial and ethnic groups in the U.S. And so I'm wondering, how often do you hear from folks who are sharing their story? Who, what kinds of stories do you hear? And what kind, and, and, and how does that, how does that impact your work? You know, I think, of course, we hear from our communities, but we also know that when you are an immigrant, when you are uh, here with language barriers and you're trying to make your way in perhaps a system you're not as familiar with, it is very intimidating to speak out about your experience. And one of, I think, the roles that we're most proud of as an organization is we really want to represent our communities and give voice to them. So we allow them the platform of an organization, right? Rather than speaking up individually to be able to give voice to that, you know, um, through our organization rather than, um, and, and give them the platform that can reach others as well, right? And I think that's really important um, for us to be able to, to, to provide a platform for our communities to express themselves in a manner that they feel comfortable with, in the language that they feel comfortable with, um, and at a time that they feel comfortable enough to share, um, particularly in these days when we see such uh, increasing rates of violence against our communities, we wanna make sure that they um, have the freedom to to do it on their own terms. Yeah, that's 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 great. and the. The question I'm really asking is, what are they saying? Who are you hearing from? Can you share any examples of people you're hearing from that engage in discussions about those very things? I know people are sometimes intimidated, but you said you do hear from people. So what kinds of things are you hearing from them? Well, as I said, I think that there is support for, um, across the board, as I said, I think we're hearing that people want equal access to opportunities, right? I think people, um, we're hearing that we want equal access to education opportunities. We want uh, to feel safe in our communities, um, to not be othered, um, not be considered the perpetual corner and not considered to be like the model minority myth that there's diversity, we're not a monolith um, as a community. And we, you know, the other thing is you may have seen from our website is that we have a, a plethora of community partners across the country that we work with who work with folks on the ground and it is national. Um, and, and I come back to this point that we're not a monolith. There's not any one message or one key point or one type of person that we hear from, um, you know, both in terms of the variety of um, Asian American uh, communities that we hear from, the variety of languages that they speak and the cultural um, richness of their cultures that they bring. Um, and so I think, you know, and ages um, and socioeconomic circumstances. And, uh, you know, we we couldn't possibly say that it's like any one type of thing because we're, we're not a monolith as a community um, in this country or um, anywhere else. Yeah, I understand. As an African-American man, I know that I know that story very well about not being monolithic. Uh, thank you. Is there anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? Uh, no. Uh, we uh, thank you for this opportunity and happy to answer any other questions. I appreciate okay. your time today. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for some thoughts about race in America and details about our next guest. You're listening to Colors. 
Hi, I'm Thomas Warren. I'm a black man from Inglewood, California. Since George Floyd was murdered, I'd say we've made a lot of progress. I mean, I think you'd have to be living under a rock to not see the way that the black plight, black voices, the black experience has been amplified in a way that I don't know that I've ever seen in the 42 years since I've been here on this earth. George Floyd being murdered was a flashpoint for people who say they didn't understand the black experience and what we go through on a day-to-day basis and they want to change and they were willing to be in the fight. My fear is those same people, the further we get away from the day George Floyd was killed, feel less compelled to keep that same energy they had when they were protesting in the streets on behalf of black folk. Because no matter how many days pass on a calendar, as a black man in this country, I fully understand the same threat that George Floyd was perceived to be the day he died is what I carry. My hope is that it doesn't take another George Floyd for that energy, that sense of urgency to be reignited in people to support black people. We shouldn't keep having to be killed for that light bulb to go off in people's heads. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. My name is Gretchen Soren. I'm African-American, and I live in Springfield Center, New York. My name is Adam Carter. I am white, and I am from uh, South St. Paul, Minnesota. My name is Jesselyn. I am a multiracial woman raised primarily by white people. I live in Oakland, California. And I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Color. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Natalia Molina is a distinguished professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. She's written a new book. It's called A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. My grandmother immigrated to the U.S. in 1921 at the age of 21 from Mexico. Looks around the landscape and says, hey, if I keep working for someone, I'm never going to get ahead. So she started a restaurant that became a cultural icon and an anchor of the community in Los Angeles. A place that Hollywood celebrities came through, Marlon Brando, um, Vito Puente. It's a story of genius, leadership, courage, and compassion, especially important as America struggles through another racial rough patch. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to go. We're done with another episode, and you always hear me say thank you to a lot of people for helping with this program and today is no different thank you to everybody that helped with this program and i specifically want to thank offshane jesse gallagher and cosmic for their music and i want to thank you for everything you do for colors primarily by listening and passing details about the show on to other people and i just want to urge you right now today as i always do to just Keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.